My very first conversation with Josh was on the phone. It was a month before he got out of prison. This is the first time, like, really in my life where I get out and I actually have really nothing. Pretty much starting from scratch until I get on my feet. I wanted to know some basics about his plan for when he got out. Did he have family waiting to help him? Not really. Are you going to have any work? Yeah, I should. Um, I've always had good references. What, what kind I shouldn't of, have a problem. What kind of work do you do? Uh, before I got into this mess, uh, I was working on a tree farm. Oh, cool. A Christmas tree plantation. And- a Christmas tree farm. I'm thinking to myself, good. Josh is really going to need a job. And Josh tells me he loved this job. He loved being outdoors all day. He loved working with his hands. He liked his boss, Rick, who owned the farm. Is it still there? Still running? Yeah. Yeah. Are they people who you think you you might be able to work for in the future? Well, Rick really wasn't impressed that I got in trouble. Okay. (laughs) Because I was his longest employee. Josh changed the subject pretty quickly after that question. I figured his boss there just didn't like what he'd done to get arrested. You know, I I didn't know anything other than working with him out in the fields of trees and... This is the Rick who Josh just mentioned, Rick Zielfelder. I asked him what Josh was like. Josh was a breath of fresh air. My impression of Josh was... You know, a, he was a small guy, but he was super strong. He was super high energy. The last couple of years, Josh actually kind of ran operations for our farm up there. The farm cut and sold 3,000 trees a year. Rick and his wife handled all the office work, but the farm itself, Josh ran the whole thing. And he was really good at it. He started out as a seasonal farmhand, working below another guy. Rick let that guy go in order to promote Josh. But he worked circles around the other person, and we had to make a tough decision, and we chose to move forward with Josh. He blew me away with how hard a worker he was. Because I was his longest employee, and I've been there for off and on for like seven years. Um, but Josh needs a job. For one, he's broke. Also, having a job is one of his parole conditions. They can send him back if he doesn't find work. And it's a fact that employers discriminate against people like Josh, people with felony records. So his best shot at getting a job right out of prison will be working for someone who knows him, someone from his past. Uh, Kenny says he'll take me back roofing and... I know a guy named Paul. He might be able to get me on a lobster boat. So yeah. I have a lot. I have some options. The problem is, some of the guys Josh used to work for are honest, reliable. And some of them are not. Some of them have gotten Josh in trouble. Honestly, I hope Josh calls the tree farm guy. But he won't. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Supervision. I'm Emily Corwin. Episode 4, Put It to Rest. At the end of the last episode, 
I told you that that moment in the hallway was the last time I ever saw Josh. Before I tell you what happened, I need to back up a little bit. I need to tell you more about the tree farm. Rick Zielfelder is a gentle guy. He speaks carefully. I met up with him at his motorcycle suspension shop. The tree farm is more of a hobby. And sitting with his arms on his desk, eventually, Rick tells me the rest of the story that Josh had carefully avoided. So those first years were Josh as we knew Josh. Over time, some things started to change, and we didn't know what, when, why. Rick says early on, Josh was part of the team. At lunchtime, Rick's family and all the employees would sit together to eat bagged lunches from home. There's a lot of fields out there, and at a point in time, it became Josh would get in his car, drive to a far corner, and sit by himself, and I don't know what he was doing. I look back now and have to wonder what he was doing, but I, I don't know. Was Josh drinking? Was he doing drugs? Even uh, his demeanor was different, and that's why we did speculate there was something going on in the background, because that wasn't the personality of the person that we knew early on. Josh also started showing up to work with sketchy-looking friends, or not showing up at all. A couple times, he missed work because of what Rick calls temporary lockups. Rick started losing trust in Josh. He gave Josh assignments in the office so he could keep an eye on him. At the end, Josh just disappeared, right? There was no call, there was no text, there was no communication. That would have been early January 2015, about the same time Josh was arrested for assaulting his wife and stepson. After three months in jail, a judge let Josh out to wait at home for a trial and sentencing. That's when Josh did something. Without announcing himself, he showed up back at the Christmas tree farm at night. He'd got released. He'd got together with his wife. He showed up at the, he was into Subaru rally cars as well. He thought it'd be fun to go out in the fields and power his car around the fields in the snow. And there was way too much snow. He buried the car. He couldn't find keys to tractors at our place or a neighbor's place. And he had to call me at that point saying, hey, can you help me get my car out? And we hadn't heard from him in months at that point. And this is how we find out you're around again. They towed Josh's car out of the snow in the dark. And that was goodbye. No thanks, no nothing. There was no communication. That was just the last contact. This is a job Josh loved. It gave him a sense of purpose. But a couple months out of prison, he can't seem to bring himself to ask Rick for the job back. Right now, he's crashing with his friend Trish and borrowing money from his mom for food. I'm starting to get really desperate for work right now, so I'll probably go roofing. But everybody doesn't want me to do that. Wait, talk about that. 
Well, this roofing company I used to work for, I got in trouble before. Um, Josh says he knows a guy who'll hire him. The guy who owns the roofing company, Kenny Stanley. Before Josh's seven years at the tree farm, he worked for this guy. Now, Josh's family and friends are saying, don't do it. None of his vehicles are ever registered or inspected. And nobody has driver's licenses. And they're all, you know, bad drug habits. What information I could find about Kenny is not good. His roofing company has been fined $385,000 for federal health and safety violations. And Kenny himself has had at least 33 cases against him in New Hampshire courts. There are small claims cases, simple assaults, violating a protective order, menacing dogs, you name it. Kenny pays people under the table. And Josh says the other employees use drugs. And if all that's not bad enough... There's this one thing that happened while Josh was working for Kenny way back when. It makes his family and friends nervous now. See, back then, just like today, Josh had a DWI. I didn't have a license. Nobody had a license, and he was freaking out, yelling at everybody. So this anecdote Josh is about to describe, I couldn't find a record of it. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. I can tell you Josh does have a drug charge on his record. And the state has charged Kenny with both allowing an improper person to operate a vehicle and with failing to get his vehicles inspected. Anyway, according to Josh, Kenny asked him to drive some guys to a job. Ken, yeah, he asked, but it was a, you know, pretty much a do-it-or-lose-your-job way. I see. All right. So they, they told you to drive? Yes. Um... Ah, we were, uh, we had a job in Massachusetts, and uh, we were going through the toll booth, and there was a state cop standing at the toll, you know, I guess he was checking stickers, and of course, no stickers, and cracked windshield, and sure enough, I was in handcuffs, getting charged, I thought I was just going to get charged with driving on a license, but nope, it turned in a little more serious than that. The way Josh tells it, another guy in the car had methadone on him, but it was Josh who was charged with possession. I tried pleading my case, but can't afford a lawyer. So you get a public defender that works for the state, and it's just, it's just a big setup. It's just a now, Josh is five weeks out of prison, and I can't find him. I reach out to Trish, who he was living with. She tells me he moved. Her landlord kicked him out. So I call Chris, Josh's friend who picked him up that first day out of prison. Josh, he says, is struggling. After he left Trish's place in Rochester, he went to Milton, the next town north, to live at his stepdad's place. Milton? What's in Milton? I mean, you need a car, you need a license if you want to do anything in Milton. Rochester is a small city. It has public buses and a downtown. Milton is an old mill town, population 4,000. It has a gas station, a dollar store, a Dunkin' Donuts, and a pizza place. That's it. It's isolating. Without a car or a license, it's hard to imagine Josh getting a job or keeping up with friends. Are you worried about him up in Milton? Like, do you think he would get into trouble up there? No, 
There's nothing to do. I, I worry more about, like, the people he's working with because, you know, I mean, it's a shady thing. I mean, he kicked and bust his ass all week, worked 14-hour days out in the 90-degree heat on a roof, and then turn around... Then Chris tells me Josh is working for a roofing company. This roofing company, though, like, this isn't the same company that he got in trouble with before. Like, it's not the same guy, is it? Yeah, I think it is. It's the same guy. Oh. Okay. Huh. You know, it's not on the books. It's under the table. It's it's everything that's just wrong. So Josh is working for Kenny. Like everyone else in Josh's life, Chris doesn't want him to work for Kenny's company. And Chris claims... He has a great job lined up for Josh, doing construction. All he has to do is make a phone call, and he can have a job in Portsmouth for two years, making $36 an hour. Do you think Josh would make that phone call? And he just hasn't done it. I'm like, all you got to do is call. Like, I talked to the guy today. I say, are you hiring? He goes, we can't get enough people here. What's Josh making in his current job? A roofing? Yeah. Table scraps. And the job I'm trying to get them is, you know, full medical, full dental, vacation time, holidays. I mean, it's the full corporate package. Wow. Huh. Just, for whatever reason, you just won't act on it. And I just don't know why. And I just, I, I can lead a horse to water, but I can't pour some drink. So I've done all I can do for the kid. If there's one thing I know about Josh, it's that he hates depending on other people. What I might think of as a favor, he would call mooching. And I have a feeling the only way he could get to this sweet job in Portsmouth is if Chris drove up to Milton to give him a ride every morning. Instead, Josh is working for Kenny. Even though Josh isn't returning my phone calls, he does respond to my texts and Facebook messages. I reach out every few days. Usually, he writes back to say he'll call me later, or that he's roofing all over New England and he never knows if or when he'll get a day off. But he does give me updates, like that he finally received the $100 the prison owed him. And he says things are going pretty good with his parole officer. At one point, Josh messages to say, I work with a bunch of junkies. Later, I see Chris post a public comment on Josh's wall. It's an article in the local paper. The headline reads, Roofing Contractor Faces Fines for OSHA Violations. In the comments, Chris writes, Go union or go home in a bag. Josh replies, quote, LOL, in a bag. Death is everywhere. later, at 9 a.m. on a Monday morning, I'm eating breakfast with my mom when the phone rings. It's Chris. I pick up, but don't think to record the call. When I answer, Chris tells me, Josh is dead. In a voice more monotone than usual, he lays out his hazy understanding of what happened. He says he'd gone hiking with Josh that very weekend, and Josh seemed fine. Last night, Chris says, Josh was drinking heavily with friends. And then this morning, he was found dead in his stepdad's basement. I just went outside to smoke a cigarette. 
A few weeks later, Chris tells me how he found out Josh died. So you're out there smoking your cigarette, then what happens? Chris uh, sent him a message, and his stepmother responded back to me under his messenger icon and said, this is his stepmother, just call me at this number. What did you think was happening right then? I thought he went back to prison. So I thought he had maybe, you know, drank some beers and his parole officer just randomly happened to show up, which they can do. And then what happens next? I called her and she told me that that he died last night and I was just like, okay, <laughs> like what the fuck. Josh died on August 7, 2017, three months after getting out of prison. After he died, I was shocked and grieving and confused. Last I saw him, he seemed healthy, full of life. I never saw Josh when he was depressed or drunk or off his meds. The Josh I saw was striving. I saw a guy who, despite his crimes, was still lovable, earnest, candid, sometimes silly. I was rooting for Josh. It wasn't until I met up with Rick from the tree farm that I found someone else who was craving details the way I was. The rumor we had heard was it was a hiking accident, and we knew he loved to hike. That part was very believable. So I continued to search for hiking accidents, and I couldn't find anything, which is why I was doubtful that it had really happened in... When, when you called, you were the first person that said, yes, he is, in fact, gone. So what happened? How did Josh die? The best document I could access about the night Josh died was a police report. It was just three pages long. It did have a lot of details. They're graphic and they're sad. Here's what it says. Josh spent that day sitting around a fireplace in his step-parents' yard, drinking beer. He was with his stepsister, her boyfriend, and a friend. That friend, Brandon, stuck around with Josh after the others went home. Around 2 a.m., Josh, very drunk, went downstairs to do laundry. This is a detail that seems to me, somehow, very Josh. After that, Brandon said he heard a loud thump. When he went downstairs, he found Josh unconscious and unresponsive. He called 911 and started CPR. When Milton police officer Carrie Driscoll showed up, she wrote she could smell alcohol and vomit. She saw Josh on his back with vomit on his face and pooled around his head. She took over CPR and checked for a pulse. She couldn't find one. Paramedics arrived and attached Josh to a ventilator. Officer Driscoll watched vomit come out of his lungs. Right there, in the basement, Josh was declared dead at 2.52 a.m. Officer Driscoll waited 20 minutes for the assistant deputy medical examiner to arrive. Standing there at the scene, the medical examiner speculated that acute alcohol overdose and airway obstruction from the vomit were likely factors in Josh's death. 
So that's the police report. Just one officer's narrative of what she learned on the night Josh died. There was a more definitive account, one that determined Josh's cause of death. An autopsy and toxicology report conducted after the police went home at the medical examiner's office. Josh's family had access to that report, but when I asked his mom to share it, she stopped responding to me. And that was that. I could find no other documentation about what happened to Josh the night he died. It left me speculating about a couple big questions. Like, was Josh on any other drugs that night? The police report seemed to point away from drugs and toward alcohol as the cause of death. And based on my interviews with Josh and everything I'd seen in his criminal record, he had a drinking problem, not a drug problem. And what about those seizures? Did seizures play a role in his death? That didn't seem likely either. Chris told me Josh stopped having seizures after that first day out of prison. And Josh's mom, before she stopped responding to me, she said Josh's doctor took him off an antidepressant that may have caused the seizures. Based on everything I knew, it seemed like Josh probably died from drinking, which sadly, for Josh, didn't seem implausible. So much for my crystal ball saying he was going to do well and I had a good feeling about him. I called everyone I knew Josh had spent time with when he was on parole. I broke the news to his parole officer. Had you had any other awareness that he was drinking in excess? No. 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 Greg confirmed Josh's death and then stopped returning my calls. I tried Trish, too, but she stopped responding to my messages. When I dropped by her apartment one afternoon, her maybe eight-year-old son came downstairs to open the door. He said he'd ask his mom if I could come in. But when he came back, he said she was sleeping. At one point, I even called Kenny, the guy Josh had been working for, roofing. He actually took my call, and he agreed to meet me at a job site. Hey. Hello. Are you Sean? Sean is up here. Sean! Is, is Kenny up here? Kenny isn't here yet. Oh, he's not there yet. Okay, do you know if he's coming? Yeah, he's coming. Okay. An hour passed, then another. Are you waiting for Kenny? Yeah. Say about an hour. Another hour? Okay. I waited for Kenny for four hours. Kenny didn't show. I don't have ill feelings towards Josh. Did things change? Yes. Was I frustrated when Josh disappeared and then he showed up the way he did? Yes. Um, But I am still shocked that he's not here. To me, at least, what was shocking wasn't that something bad would happen to Josh. But it seemed like the worst possible outcome would be him going back to prison, not dying. Unfortunately, I feel that there was some sort of demon in Josh's life, some sort of bad feeling inside of Josh that led Josh to a place that he's not naturally at. Um, That's my assumption. 
A few months later, I meet up with Chris. Since Josh was paroled, Chris got married and had a baby girl. We meet at the same park where Josh had taken me, the same park where Josh took his son to the playground a dozen years ago. I watch Chris and his wife struggle to open a brand new stroller. She is going to walk the baby around the park while he and I talk. You want to sit down? No, it's all right. No? Yeah, I'm good. All right, I'll stand. I try to get close with my microphone, but he's keeping his distance. I ask Chris a bunch of questions about the circumstances around Josh's death, and I don't learn anything new. And... Like, to, to your best ability, like, what do you understand now happened? Nobody knows. Or I don't know. His mother doesn't know, and if she does, she's not releasing it, so. That's it? Like, nobody knows what happened? Well, the coroner. As far as I can tell, Chris was Josh's closest friend. He coordinated Josh's cremation, spread some of his ashes on Josh's favorite mountains. Chris says he's grieved. He's focused on being a dad. Not too many people set up a cremation on Monday and then catch a baby on Tuesday. So August was a little tough for me. Do you think that there's any thing that can be learned from Josh's experience? Yeah, don't go to prison. about it. I mean, don't go to prison and don't do the dumb shit that led you there in the first place. Put it to rest, you know. Close your story out. Find another one. Move on. That's what Josh would want. You know, he wants you to just move on. He wants you to just move on. For the most part, that's what I did. I got a new job. I left New Hampshire. A year passed, then another year. I moved on, but I couldn't put it to rest. People always tell you that you're just like your dad. And as it turned out, yeah, I wasn't the only one. I was wondering, like, how you feel about that. My dad could be very scary. He could be your best friend or your worst nightmare. And I'm still scared of going down the same path that he went when he got older. The final episode of Supervision is in your feed right now. Supervision was reported and hosted by Emily Corwin. It was produced by me, Jack Rodolico. Editing by Dan Barrick, Erica Janik, and Maureen McMurray. Additional production by Jackie Fulton. Digital production by Sarah Plord and Rebecca Lavoy. Supervision is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. If you are in an abusive relationship and you want help making a plan to get out of it, you can call the Domestic Violence Hotline. Their number is 1-800-799-SAFE. If you're unable to speak on the phone safely, you can go to their website, thehotline.org. And if you think you may be mistreating or hurting your partner, you can get help at the same place. <laughs>